0: The Law School of America The rule against perpetuities is a legal rule in the Anglo-American common law that prevents people from using legal instruments, usually a deed or a will, to exert control over the ownership of private property for a time long beyond the lives of people living at the time the instrument was written. Specifically, the rule forbids a person from creating future interests traditionally contingent remainders and executory interests, in property that would vest beyond 21 years after the lifetimes of those living at the time of creation of the interest, often expressed as a life and being plus 21 years. In essence, the rule prevents a person from putting qualifications and criteria in a deed or a will that would continue to affect the ownership of property long after he or she has died, a concept often referred to as control by the dead hand or mortmain. The basic elements of the rule against perpetuities originated in England in the 17th century and were crystallized into a single rule in the 19th century. The rule's classic formulation was given in 1886 by the American legal scholar John Chipman Gray. No interest is good unless it must vest, if at all, not later than 21 years after some life and being at the creation of the interest. John Chipman Gray, Rule Against Perpetuities Section 201 The rule against perpetuity serves a number of purposes. First, English courts have long recognized that allowing owners to attach long-lasting contingencies to their property harms the ability of future generations to freely buy and sell the property, since few people would be willing to buy property that had unresolved issues regarding its ownership hanging over it. Second, judges often had concerns about the dead being able to impose excessive limitations on the ownership and use of property by those still living. For this reason, The rule only allows testators, will-makers, to put contingencies on ownership upon the following generation plus 21 years. Lastly, the rule against perpetuities was sometimes used to prevent very large, possibly aristocratic estates from being kept in one family for more than one or two generations at a time. The rule also applies to options to acquire property. Often, one of the objectives of delaying the time of vesting is to avoid or reduce taxation of some sort. For example, A bequest in a will may be to one's grandchildren, often with a life interest to one's surviving spouse and then to the children, to avoid the payment of multiple death duties or inheritance taxes on the testator's estate. The rule against perpetuities was one of the devices developed to at least limit this tax avoidance strategy. Historical Background The rule has its origin in the Duke of Norfolk's case of 1682. That case concerned Henry, 22nd Earl of Arundel who had tried to create a shifting executory limitation so that some of his property would pass to his eldest son who was mentally deficient and then to his second son and other property would pass to his second son but then to his fourth son the estate plan also included provisions for shifting property many generations later if certain conditions should occur when his second son Henry succeeded to his elder brother's property he did not want to pass the other property to his younger brother Charles Charles sued to enforce his interest, and the court, in this instance, the House of Lords, held that such a shifting condition could not exist indefinitely. The judges believed that tying up property too long beyond the lives of people living at the time was wrong, although the exact period was not determined until another case, Cydale v. Palmer, 150 years later. The rule against perpetuities is closely related to another doctrine in the common law of property, the rule against unreasonable restraints on alienation. Both stem from an underlying principle or reference in the common law disapproving of restraints on property rights. However, while a violation of the rule against perpetuities is also a violation of the rule against unreasonable restraints on alienation, the reciprocal is not true. As one has stated, the rule against perpetuities is an ancient, but still vital, rule of property law intended to enhance marketability of property interests by limiting remoteness of vesting. For this reason, another court has declared that the provisions of the rule are predicated upon public policy and thus constitute non-waivable, legal prohibitions. Common Law. Black's Law Dictionary defines the rule against perpetuities as a common law rule prohibiting a grant of an estate unless the interest must vest, if at all, no later than 21 years, plus a period of gestation to cover a posthumous birth, after the death of some person alive when the interest was created. At Common Law. The length of time was fixed at 21 years after the death of an identifiable person alive at the time the interest was created. This is often expressed as lives in being plus 21 years. Under the common law rule, one does not look to whether an interest actually will vest more than 21 years after the lives in being. Instead, if there exists any possibility at the time of the grant, however unlikely or remote, that an interest will vest outside of the perpetuities period, the interest is void and is stricken from the grant the rule does not apply to interests in the grantor himself. For example, the grant for a so long as alcohol is not sold on the premises, then to be would violate the rule as to be however, the conveyance to be would be stricken, leaving to a so long as alcohol is not sold on the premises. This would create a fee simple determinable in a, with the possibility of reverter in the grantor, or the grantor's heirs. The grant to be would be void as it is possible alcohol would be sold on the premises more than 21 years after the deaths of a b, and the grantor. However, as the rule does not apply to grantors, the possibility of reverter in the grantor, or his heirs, would be valid. Statutory Modification. Many jurisdictions have statutes that either cancel out the rule entirely or clarify it as to the period of time and persons affected. In the United Kingdom, dispositions of property subject to the rule before July 14, 1964 remain subject to the rule. The Perpetuities and Accumulations Act 1964 provides for the effect of the rule of interests created thereafter. The Perpetuities and Accumulations Act 2009 codified the wait and see doctrine developed by courts and made the perpetuity period 125 years. In the Republic of Ireland, the rule was abolished as of December 1, 2009. The states of the United States have differing approaches. Some states follow the wait and see approach, or second look doctrine, and/or apply the Cyprus doctrine. Under the wait-and-see approach, the validity of a suspect future interest is determined on the basis of facts as they now exist at the end of the measuring life, and not at the time the interest was created. Under the Cypre doctrine, if the interest does violate the rule against perpetuities, the court may reform the grant in a way that does not violate the rule and reduce any offensive age contingency to 21 years. Other states have adopted the uniform statutory rule against perpetuities, or some variant of it which extends the waiting period typically to 90 years after creation of the interest. At least six states have repealed the rule in its entirety, and many have extended the vesting period of the wait-and-see approach for an extremely long period of time, in Florida, for example, up to 360 years for trusts. In Australia, each of the states has followed the UK approach to perpetuities, with statutory modification. In New South Wales, for example, The Perpetuities Act 1984 limits perpetuities to 80 years, but also adopts the wait-and-see approach. Application in the United States The rule against perpetuities is one of the most difficult topics encountered by law school students. It is notoriously difficult to apply properly. In 1961, the Supreme Court of California ruled that it was not legal malpractice for an attorney to draft a will that inadvertently violated the rule. In the United States, the common law rule has been abolished by statute in Alaska, Idaho, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Rhode Island, and South Dakota. A new U.S. uniform statutory rule against perpetuities was published in 1986 that adopts the wait and see approach with a flat waiting period of 90 years in place of the rule of life in being plus 21 years. As of 2018, 31 jurisdictions have adopted the new rule Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas. California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Indiana, Kansas, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oregon, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, Virginia, Washington, and West Virginia, and the District of Columbia and the U.S. Virgin Islands. As of 2015, the New York State Legislature considered whether to adopt the new rule. Other jurisdictions apply the CIPRE doctrine, which validates contingent remainders and executory interests. Under certain circumstances, the traditional rule would have considered these remainders and interests to be void. Applications. In 1919, Wellington Arbert died leaving a will that specified that apart from small allowances, his estate was not to be distributed until 21 years after the death of the last of his grandchildren to be born in his lifetime. This condition was met in 2010, 21 years after his granddaughter Marion Lansill died in November 1989. After the heirs reached an agreement, the estate, which had reached an estimated value of $100 million to $110 million, was finally distributed in May, 2011. 92 years after his death. Charity to charity exception. The rule never applies to conditions placed on a conveyance to a charity that, if violated, would convey the property to another charity. For example, a conveyance to the Red Cross, so long as it operates an office on the property, but if it does not, then to the World Wildlife Fund would be valid under the rule, because both parties are charities. Even though the interest of the fund might not vest for hundreds of years, the conveyance would nonetheless be held valid. The exception, however, does not apply if the conveyance, upon violation of the condition, is not from one charity to another charity. Thus, a devise to John Smith, so long as no one operates a liquor store on the premises, but if someone does operate a liquor store on the premises, then to the Roman Catholic Church would violate the rule. The exception would not apply to the transfer from John Smith to the Roman Catholic Church because John Smith is not a charity. Also, If the original conveyance was to John Smith and his heirs for as long as John Smith or his heirs do not use the premises to sell liquor, but if he does, then to the Red Cross this would violate the rule because it could be more than 21 years before the interest in Red Cross would vest, and therefore, their interest is void. Thus leaving John with a fee simple, determinable, and the grantor a possibility of reverter. A famous actual example of this exception applies to Harvard's Widener Library. Eleanor Elkins Widener, the library's benefactor, Stipulated that no additions or alterations could be made to the facade of the building. If the university ever changes the facade, it loses the building to the Boston Public Library. Because both Harvard and the Boston Public Library are charities, the restriction can apply indefinitely. Saving Clause. In order to satisfy the rule against perpetuities, the class of people must be limited and determinable. Thus, one cannot say in a deed until the last of the people in the world now living dies, plus 21 years to avoid problems caused by incorrectly drafted legal instruments, practitioners in some jurisdictions include a saving clause almost universally as a form of disclaimer. This standard clause is commonly called the Kennedy Clause or the Rockefeller Clause because the determinable lives and being are designated as the descendants of Joseph P. Kennedy, the father of John F. Kennedy, or John D. Rockefeller. Both designate well-known families with many descendants, and are consequently suitable for named, identifiable lives and being. For a time, it was popular to use a royal lives clause, and make the term of a deed run until the last of the descendants of, for example, Queen Victoria now living dies plus 21 years. Related Rules. Jurisdictions may limit usufruct periods. For example, if a corporation builds a ski slope, and gives rights of use, usufruct, as gifts to corporate partners, these cannot last in perpetuity, but must terminate after a period that must be specified, for example 10 years. A perpetual usufruct is thus forbidden and perpetual might mean a long, but finite period, such as 99 years. Here usufruct is distinct from a share, which may be held in perpetuity. Cultural References The rule against perpetuities figures as a prominent plot point in the 1981 film Body Heat. It also figured as a secondary plot line in the 2011 film The Descendants. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. In the common law of England, the doctrine of worthier title was a legal doctrine that preferred taking title to real estate by descent over taking title by devise or by purchase. It essentially provides that a remainder cannot be created in the grantor's heirs, at least not by those words. The rule provided that were a testator undertook to convey an heir the same estate and land that the heir would take under the laws of inheritance the heir would be adjudged to have taken title to the land by inheritance rather than by the conveyance, because descent through the bloodline was held to be worthier than a conveyance through a legal instrument. History of the Doctrine The doctrine of worthier title, like the rule in Shelley's case, had its origin in attempts by royal courts to defeat various devices contrived by lawyers during the era of feudalism to retain lands in their families while avoiding feudal duties, and to secure its free alienability. The creation of family settlements designed to preserve land within the family, transfer it without feudal duties due to the lords of the fee upon transfer at death, and preserve it from claims of creditors, occupied the ingenuity of many common lawyers during the late Middle Ages. So did efforts to undo the restrictions placed by ancestors once they became inconvenient. These concerns underlie the explanation given in Coke on Littleton. But if a man makes a gift entail, or a lease of life, the remainder to his right heirs this remainder is void, and he hath the revision in him, for the ancestor during his life beareth in his body and judgment of law all his heirs, and therefore it is truly said that heirs as pars antecessories. The heir is a part of the ancestor, and this appeareth in a common case, that if land be given to a man and his heirs, all his heirs are so totally in him as he may give the land to whom he will. The law deemed that since no one is an heir until the person he or she inherits from dies, an attempt to create a remainder interest in the heir created no present interest at all. This interpretation draws strength by analogy from the common words of a conveyance in fee simple, to an and his heirs. This conveyance creates no present interest in any heir, why should a remainder do the same? Why it makes a difference. But if the heir receives the same interest in the property that he would have received either way, the doctrine of worthier title would appear at first impression to be a distinction without a difference. The rule divests heirs of interests they seem to have under instruments. The rule makes a difference when property owners make inter vivos gifts of less than fee simple interests. Suppose Adam owns title to lands, is married to Beulah, and executes a deed to Beulah for life, and then to Adam's heirs, Caleb and Dinah. Adam's intent in these words of conveyance would appear to be to grant Beulah a life estate, and then create a vested remainder interest in his apparent heirs Caleb and Dinah. The remainder interest is vested because Beulah is mortal, her death is certain to happen. But, since Caleb and Dinah are already Adam's apparent heirs, their interest under the laws of descent is worthier than the interest they take under the instrument, and the deed is construed as if Adam had stopped with to Beulah for life. This doctrine is further complicated by the fact that although Caleb and Dinah are Adam's heirs apparent, it is legally impossible to determine who is an heir until the death of the grantor. The remainder interest Caleb and Dinah were meant to have in the land subject to Beulah's life estate would have been a vested interest as the conveyance was written, but that vested interest is wiped out by the doctrine of worthier title. Imagine then that Adam then falls on hard times, and his creditors take judgments against him. If the deed were given effect as written, Caleb and Dinah's vested rights to the remainder interest would have existed p. prior to any judgment liens, and would therefore be prior in right to the claims of Adam's creditors. The doctrine of worthier title, preferring title by intestate succession over title by the instrument, wipes out that vested interest and prefers the rights of Adam's creditors over the rights of Adam's heirs. This illustrates that although the doctrine of worthier title, by its terms, does not affect the right passed from the ancestor to the heir, it can operate to cut off rights of the heirs against third parties. It makes a difference who one's heirs are. The doctrine of worthier title can also affect estates created by will, when those estates are in people who would not take by intestate succession. Suppose once more that Adam is a testator, Adam's good friends in life were Edward and Fran, and Adam's surviving child is Dinah. Under applicable state laws of intestate succession, Dinah would be Adam's heir if Adam had no will. But Adam does have a will, it firstly leaves his land to Edward for life, then to Adam's heirs, and it also contains a residuary clause that leaves the remainder of Adam's estate to Fran. By the operation of the instrument, Edward would have a life estate in the land, while Fran would inherit the rest of the estate immediately, then Adam's heirs, for example, Donna, would have a vested remainder interest in the land and expect to inherit it upon Edward's death. The doctrine of worthier title intervenes, however with unexpected results. The doctrine prefers the interest Adams' heirs would have taken to the interest created by an instrument. Here, however, Adams will designate Fran as his heir at law. Instead of a life estate in Edward, followed by a vested remainder in Dinah, the doctrine of worthier title operates to disinherit Dinah completely, treats the interest of the heirs as a mere reversion, and upon Edward's death gives the land, as well, to Fran. Obsolescence of the Doctrine The doctrine of worthier title can be avoided by naming specific people, or classes of people, for example, my children, instead of using the phrase my heirs. As such, the doctrine of worthier title seldom comes into play. The doctrine has also been abolished, either by statute or by judicial decisions, in many common law jurisdictions. In some jurisdictions, the rule survives, but only as a presumption or a rule of construction. That can be rebutted by evidence that the grantor meant otherwise. A restraint on alienation, in the law of real property, is a clause used in the conveyance of real property that seeks to prohibit the recipient from selling or otherwise transferring his interest in the property. Under the common law, such restraints are void as against the public policy of allowing landowners to freely dispose of their property. Perhaps the ultimate restraint on alienation was the fee tale a form of ownership which required that property be passed down in the same family from generation to generation, which has also been widely abolished. However, certain reasonable restraints will be given effect in most jurisdictions. These traditionally include. 1. A prohibition against partition of property for a limited time. 2. The right of first refusal, for example, if Joey sells property to Rachel, he may require that if Rachel later decides to sell the property. She must first give Joey the opportunity to buy it back. 3. The establishment of public parks and gardens, as was the case for the Royal Parks of London in the UK. These public spaces were created under such terms by the Crown Estate, which meant that these parks were held in perpetuity for the public to use. Some specific restraints on alienation in the United States include Disabling Restraints. To be effective, the grantor must sue the grantee for enforcement the effectiveness of the lawsuit could prevent the transfer from being made. In addition, if the disabling restraint is found to be unconstitutional the restraint will not be effective. Promissory restraints. If the promissory note is breached by the grantee, the grantor may sue for damages. Unlike disabling restraints, the effectiveness of the lawsuit does not prevent the transfer from being made. However, the Supreme Court says promissory restraints are not permissible. The promissory note discourages the person getting ready to sell the property which is the same effect as the disabling restraint. Forfeiture Restraints In the event of a breach the property returns to the grantor or the grantor's heirs. The return happens automatically, hence the argument can be made that there is no state actions. However, according to a constitutional argument the mere fact that the state recognizes the validity of an automatic transfer makes it a state action. To be effective the restraint must be reasonable and the restraint must be the same as a real covenant or equitable servitude. There are six factors to determine if a restraint on alienation is reasonable. 1. Type of price, fixed or not fixed, courts prefer non-fixed. 2. Purpose, is it a legitimate purpose, or not? Courts prefer legitimate. 3. Equal bargaining power of the parties. 4. Duration, a time limit to the restraint is preferred. 5 limit to the number of persons to which transfer is prohibited. 6. A restraint that increases the value of property is more reasonable. There are five basic conditions that must be met in order for there to be an effective real covenant and equitable servitude. 1. It must be enforceable. To be enforceable it must not be too vague, it must not violate a statute or the Constitution, it must not violate public policy, and it must meet the requirements under the statute of frauds. Two it must touch and concern the land. 3. It must be intended to run. 4. There must be privity between the successive occupants. 5. There must be notice of the existence of a real covenant-slash-equitable servitude. New Zealand Law. In New Zealand, Taitore Fenua Maori Act 1993 Maori Land Act 1993 puts restrictions on alienation of land owned by a Maori person, or by a group which is predominantly Maori. Sections 146 and 147 of the Act Force an owner of Maori land who wishes to alienate their interest in the land to give right of first refusal to people belonging to preferred classes of alienees. These preferred classes include Wanamka, blood relations, of the owner, other current owners, and members of the owner's Hapu. The rule in Shelley's case is a rule of law that may apply to certain future interests in real property and trusts created in common law jurisdictions it was applied as early as 1366 in the provost of Beverly's case but in its present form is derived from Shelley's case, 1581, in which counsel stated the rule as follows. When the ancestor by any gift or conveyance takes an estate of freehold, and in the same gift or conveyance an estate is limited either immediately or immediately to his heirs in fee simple or in fee tale, that always in such cases, theirs are words of limitation of the estate, not words of purchase. The rule was reported by Lord Coke in England in the 17th century as well settled law. In England, it was abolished by the Law of Property Act 1925. During the 20th century, it was abolished in most common law jurisdictions, including the majority of the states of the United States. However, in states where the abrogation has been interpreted to apply only to conveyances made after abrogation, the relevance of the rule today varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and in many states remains unclear. The rule is still in operation in all Canadian jurisdictions with the exception of Quebec, which uses civil law, and Manitoba, though it has made an appearance in case law only a few times in the last century. History The 1366 application of the rule in common law closely followed Occam's razor, William of Occam's articulation of the problem solving principle that entities should not be multiplied without necessity. The eponymous litigation was brought about because of a settlement made by Sir William Shelley. 1480-1549, an English judge, on an estate he purchased when Sion Monastery was dissolved. The decision was rendered by Lord Chancellor Sir Thomas Bromley, who presided over an assembly of all the judges on the king's bench to hear the case during Easter term 1580-81. The rule existed in English common law long before this case was brought to the court, but Shelley's case gave the law its most famous application. Issue. When an owner of land in fee simple died. The Lord of the Fee was entitled to incidents of tenure deriving from the descent to the heir, analogous to the modern-day estate tax. Large landowners who desired the life tenant, who was perhaps the landowner himself, conveying through a straw party, to avoid the estate tax attempted to create a future interest in the form of the remainder in the heirs of that life tenant. It was the intention of the landowner or testator to allow the heirs of the life tenant, once ascertained at the natural expiration of his life estate, To take as purchasers by way of the original executed conveyance, and not by dissent, avoiding the tax. Thus, in a basic conveyance, O grants black acre to B for life, then to B's heirs, absent the rule there was a life estate in B, and a contingent remainder in B's heirs. The rule converted the contingent remainder in B's heirs into a vested remainder in B. The rule's effect ended there. After that, the doctrine of merger operated on the two successive freehold estates placed in the same purchaser. B's life estate and B's remainder in fee simple, and converted them into a single fee simple absolute in B. B's heirs, necessarily ascertained only if B's death, could only take B's fee simple by descent and had to pay the tax. Thus, a conveyance to B for life, then to B's children, where B has living children C, D, and E, does not violate the rule because the class members are ascertained, and new ascertained members may join the class so long as B, the class member producer. Lives, plus nine months if he is male. Example. Suppose Joe has a rich parent named Grandpa who considers Joe careless and imprudent, but who wishes to ensure that Joe's children are provided for. Grandpa might try to deed a house to Joe for life, and then to Joe's heirs, thus ensuring that Joe and his family could live in the house, but Joe could not sell it to pay gambling debts. The remainder men in this case are the grandchildren. The rule in Shelley's case states that, this language notwithstanding, Joe is the absolute owner of the property. The rule generalized. Simply stated, the rule deals with remainders and the transfer of real property by deed. A remainder is a right carved out of the fee simple which has some future interest so that, at some later date, the holder of the remainder, the future interest, would have ownership rights in the property and those future rights would have to be preserved. The rights could not be sold it has been explained as an attempt to prevent the sale of property once transferred by putting such limiting words in the deed of transfer. It is a classic example of common law legal reasoning and the logic involved in the interpretation of legal text which is why it continues to be an important teaching tool in the study of the common law. However, while it is an important interpretation tool, it should not be confused with a rule of construction, such as the doctrine of worthier title, as it is a rule of law. The distinction is that a rule of law cannot be overcome by proof of the grantor's intent, while a rule of construction can be. Analysis. Some scholars, such as John B. Orth, believe that this explanation, to promote the right to transfer the land, of the origin of the rule is inaccurate. In their view, the rule originated as the court's response to an estate planning technique in the 14th century, long before the litigation in Shelley's case. A tax known as the relief had to be paid to the feudal lord, the crown, when a tenant's heir inherited the land. To avoid this estate tax, if the grant to the land were framed in terms of a life estate in the grantee followed by a remainder in the grantee's heirs, then upon the grantee's death his heirs would not inherit the land, but received it as a vested remainder. As a consequence, the heir would take the land without having to pay the relief. The courts could not abide such a transparent attempt to circumvent the tax system and the rule was invented to deal with this problem by converting these transfers into fees simple absolute so as to allow the relief to be collected upon the grantee's death. Later, when the relief was abolished, the rule continued to survive in the common law due to inertia, it is the genius of the common law to add, but not to subtract, the promote the right to transfer the land explanation was concocted to explain the continued existence of the rule. It is not at all uncommon for rules of common law, once their original motivation falls away to acquire a new justification, and in the process also, sometimes, a new meaning. Many examples of such processes are given in Oliver Wendell Holmes's The Common Law. As stated by Lord Edward Cook in his argument for the defendant in the case. It is a rule of law, when the ancestor by any gift or conveyance takes an estate in freehold, and in the same gift or conveyance an estate is limited immediately or immediately to his heirs in fee or entail. That always, in such cases, the heirs are words of limitation of the estate and not words of purchase. The Law School of America. This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation, incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license. The text has been modified for audio.